The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, Lloyd, today our show is going to really be a little bit broad, but it's going to include medical privacy, and we've been hearing so much about medical issues and medical privacy and medical insurance and all sorts of things in the news lately that I thought it would be wonderful to have these two fabulous attorneys on with us today. So let me tell you a little bit about the two attorneys we're going to be interviewing who are both with O'Melveny's uh, Los Angeles Law Office. So first, let me, because they both have the name Mike and Michael, I'm going to call the first one Michael. Madigan, and then I'm going to call Michael Reynolds Mike, so I don't confuse myself or you. But first, let me tell you about Michael Madigan, who is a partner in O'Melveny and Myers LLP's Los Angeles office, and he is co-head of the firm's healthcare practice group, and also he serves as co-head of its privacy and data security practices. He's a member of the class actions, mass torts, and insurance litigation practice, and he represents insurers, health benefit companies and technology companies and complex class actions and business disputes involving privacy issues, healthcare, insurance, antitrust, and business issues. So we're thrilled about him. And along with him from the same firm, but in a different office, is Mike Reynolds, who's also in the Los Angeles office, but in a little office, it's different. And he's an associate in O'Melveny's Los Angeles office, and he's a member of the class actions mass torts an insurance litigation practice, and the privacy and data security practice. So they both work together on that. And Michael, Mike has represented, it, represented and consulted companies in a variety of complex civil issues, including class actions, insurance coverage disputes, and data breach and privacy issues. So they are both experts on data privacy, and we are just so thrilled to have them. And as a matter of fact, Michael Madigan has two books out and one is called medical records privacy under hipaa and um he has his his previous one which is called Healthcare reform law and practice and so you when you go to our website at kuci.org slash privacy piracy you'll see the link to those books too so thank you both michael and mike for joining us thanks for having us mari yeah. Thanks for having us. You know, Michael, I wanted to ask you just briefly about your new book. That's very exciting. And even though I know it's a treatise for for lawyers, I think it's so important that people know about 
their medical records and privacy. Can you just give us um, a few tips for people who are listening, whether they're attorneys or not, about what's really important to remember for medical records privacy? Sure. The book addresses HIPAA, which is the federal statute that protects medical information. And HIPAA recently has undergone a number of significant revisions. Um, in general, HIPAA applies to companies, uh, insurance companies or, or, or doctors and hospitals that are dealing with medical information. And I think uh, a key point of awareness that, um, that a lot of people don't have but that comes from the new revisions to the statute is just that the, the application of HIPAA has been broadened to not only companies that uh, have traditionally been thought of as, as being subject to it, like insurers or, or doctors or hospitals, but also to companies that deal with them, uh, which are known as business associates. And so uh, I think both for, for companies and for individuals, uh, it's important to know who, who has your information and also to ensure that uh, appropriate safeguards are being taken with it. Right, and that you can get copies of those. I've found out in recent years with some medical issues, it's really important to get your own medical records and have those and be able to share them with the other doctors that are working on things. And so that's uh, that's going to be a bigger issue as we go forward. You're right. Okay, so let's get started. Michael, let me ask you another question, and then we're going to go on to Mike. Um, how has the legal understanding of privacy rights in our country changed over time? Well, it's an interesting uh, topic, Mari, because privacy is such a hot-button issue now, and when you look back at the history of it, it's interesting to, to observe how it started being a hot-button issue and when. And I think most legal scholars think that the right to privacy, that expression or that concept, was first used in about 1890 in a famous article in the Harvard Law Review, actually, by... Uh, Samuel Warren and Louis Brandeis. Louis Brandeis later became a famous Supreme Court justice. And the article is fascinating because in some ways it sounds like it was written yesterday, and in other ways it sounds like it's hopelessly op uh, anachronistic uh, and from another time. But it makes a key point I'll, I'll describe that I think does apply. The article was written because uh, Warren in particular was upset about some press coverage that had been um, devoted to a wedding he hosted at his house, and the article had been critical of his wife's floral arrangements. And he and he and Brandeis thought this was a uh, an invasion of his privacy, and so developed the right to privacy in part to say that uh, newspapers shouldn't be able to publish things like that, and they should be subject to uh, suppression of publication, essentially, which it seems very very anachronistic. Uh, but some of the language in the article seems like it could have been written yesterday. For example, uh, one sentence that I think really leaks, leaps out is he wrote, Recent inventions and business methods call attention to the next step which must be taken for the protection of the person and for sec securing to the individual the right to be let alone. So that, that could have been written about NSA Yes. Uh, surveillance or, or other topics, and and essentially what the what the what the article argues that I think is very relevant today is that uh, the law uh, adapts to changing social notion of privacy, or it should adapt to changing social notions of privacy. And I think what's happening today is that because of technological developments and changes in society, our our sense of what 
privacy is and and means is is undergoing a change and 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 probably is a little bit dislocated at the moment people people aren't perhaps even sure what privacy means in in the in the Facebook era and so i think the law also is struggling with that and we're seeing changes in the law as it tries to sort of catch up to what's happening in technology and in society, just in a similar way to what Brandeis was trying to do when he came up with the right of privacy as a way to shield what he viewed as the private sphere from, you know, gossip columnists. Right, right. So the the right to be left alone is is one type of privacy. But let's talk, Mike, about the legal understanding of privacy and, and how it's changed now, because we're talking about a lot about information privacy, aren't we? Oh, yeah, ab- absolutely, Mari. This is, uh, a- as Mike mentioned, um, it's what, what drove the, the Brandeis article, um, the right to privacy, was changes in technology. Um, the the pr- more, more press available um, handheld cameras, so you, could, so you could take pictures instantaneously, uh, whereas b- before you had to sit to take a picture, uh, at that time, you know, with the with the new cameras, you could take a picture instantaneously and publish that picture, and people were very afraid that that this would invade uh, people's right to privacy. Wouldn't they? Uh, w- wouldn't they die if they? Wouldn't they just turn over in their graves if I if they saw how we take pictures with our cell phones? Oh, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. We're, we're seeing you know teenagers posting uh, selfies of themselves uh, all over <laughs> Facebook and Instagram and stuff. Uh, and, and, so it's it's the same. It's the it's it's kind of this. You know, evolution of technology, this the new technology, and I, I think especially where we're seeing the this this privacy rights being our, our understanding of privacy rights being challenged is in is in the in the big data area where we're seeing information that you know on its on its own we we might not consider necessarily private, but when we start to aggregate that information all to, together, we start to create these. Really, kind of uh, frightening dossiers of, of people um, that uh, that these data companies are able to to uh, sell um, to to marketers, advertisers, and and uh, we're we're as a I think the legislatures and courts are struggling a little bit with uh, how to how to uh, define what what our right to privacy in, is in this in this area era. Yeah. And, you know, for a long time, we have the credit bureaus, you know, collect our information. So that's pretty transparent because we have a right to see our credit reports. We can even get them at annualcreditreport.com, one free, one from each of the three credit bureaus. And so it's on there. And we know that, you know, the the research has shown that 60 to 70 percent of credit reports have errors and 30 percent are enough to actually keep you from getting a job or a house or or some kind of a car or credit but um there are when you're talking about big data you're talking about many many types of companies and and uh agencies that are really collecting major big data even more than the credit bureaus right oh yeah, absolutely absolutely uh it's 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 more information and different types of information information that while uh, it, that goes beyond just our, our financial information, uh, this information about where we sh- where we're shopping, what we like, what uh, what restaurants we go to, what music we like, what videos we're watching, uh, this is information. You know, you might think of some financial information. It's not necessarily that personal or private. Um, you know, I I don't have a 
a particular personal attachment to my credit card number. You know, uh, it's it. I, I wouldn't want that disclosed because I'd worry about theft. But 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 these these. If this information about my preferences, uh, you know, that's 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 something that that implicates some different uh, different privacy rights, some rights of of that we don't want people knowing kind of our innermost thoughts and feelings. Exactly. And if I if I could jump in, yes, uh, Michael, and add, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Uh, thanks, and add to what Mike is saying. Uh, I think that's exactly right, and and you know, Mari, from your work because you're you're a leader in the privacy area yourself. That that. Privacy is a term that is an overarching concept that we use to actually to encompass different kinds of things, as as Mike pointed out. Some of that is information that isn't personally important to us but could be used and has an economic value or could cause us economic harm, like a credit card number. But, but other other types of information have to do with more of the types of things that Brandeis talked about in his article – our our desires, our preferences, our our political views, you know where we like to shop. You you name it. Um, religious and, views, even right. Right, religious views, exactly right. And so, and so that's that's I think an example of what I meant when I was saying that the concept of privacy and the law are sort of trying to catch up with changes because we we're using privacy to really cover both of those types of things when they're really quite different. And I think big data it has received the attention that it has received because it, it sort of combines both of those elements yes. in it. And, and so, Mike, let's lead into the medical privacy arena. You know, these same concepts are, are really out there. People Shouldn't people have a right to their medical privacy, the kinds of... You know, um, should everybody know when somebody, um, you know, has a breast cancer or prostate cancer? What kinds of privacy do we have there? Uh, so, so for for a long time, medical privacy has really been one of the the least controversial uh, areas of privacy law. Um, going back to the 1800s, before even actually the uh, the Brandeis article, uh, there was a case. Uh, recognizing a right not to have someone come into your to your room while you were giving birth, and in, in that case, the uh, the doctor had allowed a, a stranger basically to to come into the room, uh, and and they recognized that that was that was that violated uh, a right. I don't think they called it a privacy right, but they recognized that that was an intrusion. Um, right. So mm-hmm. even going back that far, uh, we've recognized a very strong right of privacy for for medical for medical information. Um, and, 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 and we recognize that today, you know, com- companies, uh, as we talked about before, face, uh, um, HIPAA, HIPAA, have to follow HIPAA regulations, uh, with regard to medical privacy and, and there, and a lot of states have their own, uh, medical privacy laws. Uh, California has the California, uh, excuse me, the confidential confidentiality of medical information act that, right. has, that, that, prov- uh, provides similar uh, protections for medical information. Um, but one thing I, I, it's, it's where we see kind of a, um, uh, a, a little bit of a difference, uh, or, or a little, little struggle in, in defining exactly what the, um, the bounds of the privacy right is in under HIPAA, we, uh, HIPAA provides penalties that are, that are enforced by, uh, the federal government or state attorney general's. Attorneys General um, for violations of HIPAA, 
but HIPAA itself does not provide a private cause of action, so uh, a cause of action for people to sue for violations of HIPAA. Uh, and, and one way to think about that is that we we're, we're, we're struggling a little bit with what, what the actual harm is, how to define what the actual harm is and, or quantify what the harm is for violations or intrusions on our medical privacy. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I can see how if, if it gets out, for example, in your medical privacy, thank God we have some genetic privacy. So if somebody got my DNA, I, I can't, it can't be used so for, to keep me from getting a job with the genetic privacy. But, but let's say that a potential employer found out that I had some dreaded disease, hepatitis C or, or HIV. I mean, that could be a huge damage to me, not only emotionally, but maybe they won't give me the job, but they won't say it. They'll just say that I was not as qualified as the next person, but that I really believe that it's because of... Um, of, of the invasion of my medical privacy. Do I have a private right of action there if it's shared by a hospital? So uh, under, for, so to give, give you an example, under California, uh, under California law, California provides a private right of action. And if you can show that you had some, some economic harm from a, a release of uh, confidential information, um, you, you have a right of action against the company that released the information um, but I, I think under under HIPAA, just this recognition that that uh, you don't you, you don't have a private right of action for violating HIPAA's HIPAA's regulations, okay. um, but but you do. But but the government can fine you, or attorneys general attorneys general can sue you. Uh, is a recogni- recognition that there is this strong privacy right, but we're having trouble really defining and quantifying you know, what, what that is. And it, there, are, there certainly are situations like the one you mentioned where we can quantify that and, 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 and there are rights of action there, but the, the right itself, it's, 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 a little, it's a little malleable. Yeah, yeah. And for patients who do feel that their, their carrier or somebody revealed this information, if they can't prove anything but emotional distress or they try and go against HIPAA, they don't have a private right of action. Is that what you're saying? I can jump in on, yeah, on jump this, in, this jump is Michael. In. It, it yeah. depends. Uh, not under HIPAA, I think, is That's the That's what I meant under HIPAA, yeah. As Mike said. But yeah. there are state laws in various states that uh, try to try to give cause of action uh, to address that type of situation. And there may be other, other remedies as well. Uh, in California's uh, Confidentiality of Medical Information Act um, has, has provisions that uh, try to lay out statutory damages uh, apart from your economic injury, and um, and a lot of these things, I think, are subject to litigation and and dispute. In general, as you know, the concept in the court system is that a person has to suffer actual right. injury, and in federal court, you need that to even have standing to assert a claim. And when you look at privacy cases that have been litigated across the country in federal court, you see the courts really struggling with what that means in a situation where information may have been lost, but there's either no evidence that anybody ever saw it or used it, or even um, even where there's information that it was stolen, but, but no economic harm. Courts have been struggling to uh, you know, to try to identify any actual injury that flows from that because there's no general... Uh, you know, right to have 
all the information about you be private, notwithstanding the way we use the term right to privacy. There's no actionable uh, general right, and so courts struggle with what it means to be injured, quote-unquote, by the by, by the, the the publication or the or the loss of data. Right, right, and then it, especially unless you prove that, for example, if your data was stolen and you'd become a victim of identity theft, then right. you then you have an action. But what that, about that's all, right. yeah? What about all these, Mike? What ha, what about all these class actions for privacy? Um, how are they working, and how is the litigation? I know that. Um, Michael just started talking about that, that you have to have some injury. But can you talk more about these class actions? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we're, when, uh, we're, we're seeing a lot more class actions in the, in the privacy area in general. Um, but uh, at least uh, at this point, um, as, as Michael mentioned, um, plaintiffs are having a little bit of a, a difficulty showing that they've been harmed by a, a release of confidential information. Now, this is distinct from an inf- uh, from a from a case you mentioned where you can show uh, my my data was released and then someone stole my identity. Right. Uh, right. That, in that case, it's you, uh, um, it, you, you you have a much stronger case of showing harm. Um, but but in these class actions, because you you have one person up there representing a whole class of people, sometimes it's it's very difficult to show that that everyone was harmed just by the release of information, or at least the courts to this point, a lot of courts to this point, have um, been a little skeptical that that there's been harm or an, an injury, in fact, just from the just from the release of information, or just from the kind of heightened uh, th- uh, threat of uh, identity theft. Uh, and and in, in class actions, what, you know, one of the uh, important aspects of class actions is that you have uh, this a a kind of co- a common question that it makes it more efficient to litigate the class action um, because you can answer one question for you know potentially thousands of members. Uh, but but in cases where there is a question that is that is not common that is really going to drive the litigation, uh, the courts have have uh, said that we're, we're, we shouldn't litigate these as class actions because it's not going to be efficient. Uh, and we we might start to see in in this area um, cases where the, the courts are are saying, well, trying to show that you were actually harmed is uh, individually harmed is something that's kind of predominate over over any common questions, and so we're not going to allow this to proceed as a class action. Right. Um, another uh, something we're seeing very recently, actually, or uh, is in the settlement of class actions. Uh, a lot of these class actions involving uh, release of information have been using what's known as a Cypre settlement. And this is a right. settlement where instead of giving money directly to individual class members, the defendants are um, putting money into a, a trust or a foundation um, that's dedicated to... Um, privacy issues, like the privacy, privacy rights. Issues. Yeah, nonprofits like the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse. Exactly. And, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So we've seen a number of these settlements uh, recently, and this goes back to um, something I was I was mentioning earlier. Uh, one of the justifications, or at least uh, some commentators have mentioned this, that why we're seeing Cypre settlements in privacy actions is because, again, it's difficult to quantify for each individual class member what the harm actually was. So maybe it makes sense to, you know, we still want to punish, uh, punish a defendant who's done something wrong, 
so maybe the the uh, um, solution here is to put put the money into some uh, nonprofit or trust right. or foundation that's going to fight for uh, privacy issues. Exactly. I'm on the board of the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse, so I know about all that. And I think it's, you know, they do great work. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Michael, so, um, you know, we've we've heard about literally, you know, millions of records that have been stolen. Okay, there's a whole chronology in the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse of millions of records that have been stolen and data breaches. Um, They've either been stolen or they've been lost or they've been misplaced. And, And many of these are... You know, I mean, we've got the dirty employee, we've got the hacking, we've got um, outright theft. So what about, does it matter whether the companies are at fault if it's if it's like a third-party hacker? Or does it matter to, uh, within the law? I think yes and no is the answer um, to that, and I'll explain what I mean. I mean, first, I, I guess I'd like to note at the risk of being a cockeyed opt-out that even though um, we all deal with privacy problems or privacy breaches or privacy incidents in our work every day, and even though there's plenty to be alarmed about, I I think many companies, in my experience, actually are very focused on privacy issues and go to um, pretty extraordinary lengths to protect the information of their, their customers and 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 consumers and while you know, things certainly happen in the world, and there's there are mistakes and there are bad acts. Um, I, I think there's also actually a lot of care that's, that that many companies attempt to take with uh, this information, and I certainly know that uh, personally to be the case with respect to health information. But the the broader question you raise is a really good one because it again I think it sort of points up how the law and expectations are not, are not quite. Uh, married up, and we're we're looking for for ways to try to make them match and rules to govern the new realities. So, you know, for example, there were there was an incident that was pretty well publicized in Northern California, where uh, there were intruders that actually broke into the office building of a of a major hospital chain there and stole a bunch of computers with patient information. But they, you know, those those computers were were secured. In, in locked offices, and and if you you know if you hear discussion or or read the law, I think a lot of people whose information is taken in that type of incident understandably want to have a remedy, and I think they often look to, in that case, the hospital chain. It could be in other cases a company whose system was hacked uh, or or was victim of some other wrongdoing. They look to that company for for a remedy, and that's understandable. But it doesn't, and in some cases, the statute, you know, particular state statute, may even permit that because it doesn't require a finding that the company was at you know at fault, depending on depending on the statute or the claim. But it is sort of out of out of whack, if you'd like, with the way we normally look at you know, at, at, at tort concepts, where we try to find the person at fault and hold them accountable. So, um, so I think your question doesn't matter. It sometimes matters, and it sometimes doesn't. I, I don't think it always matters in in the, the way that people understandably try to seek redress for their claims. I think it should matter in trying to assess whether a company actually is at fault. And I think a lot of times these disputes boil down to pretty sophisticated expert claims about whether a particular company took security steps that were 
you know, that were necessary and appropriate, particularly with regard to protecting their their systems from intruders. Yeah, and I just want, we're, we're really just about out of time, but I just wanted to mention that in California, for anyone who's driving by who are listening in, and you're a California company, even a little tiny company is subject to our security breach law. So you can, if you have computerized information, even if you're a one-person um, office or you're a governmental agency, if you have a security breach, and you've encrypted all the data. You don't have any. Re- you don't have to disclose. If you haven't encrypted, you have a duty to disclose. And so, I just wanted you to know that there is that carrot that you can encrypt your sensitive data, which gives you some kind of a help, right? It's a good idea to to encrypt if you can, and to take other. Make sure you've taken and documented other security steps. Yep. Well, we are out of time now. I want to thank both Michael Madigan and Mike Reynolds with O'Melveny and Myers. And you can learn more about them at omm.com. Thank you both for all your wonderful wisdom. And we'll have you back again, okay? Thanks very much, Mario. It was a delight to be here. Okay. We'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8 a.m. for Privacy Piracy and visit our website. See our upcoming guests, download podcasts at www.KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Thanks. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.